0: No my hi, mai. Kia ora tato, and welcome to episode 11 in the Auckland Writers' Festival winter series. called Paula Morris, toku ingoa. My name is Paula Morris, and I'm speaking to you from Grays Avenue in central Auckland. In this hour, we're following a rich visual thread discussing three books that combine words and images in very different ways. As usual, I'll chat with our three writers uh, about the books in question, Each will give a short reading, and towards the end of the episode, all three writers will return for a final question or two together. You are very welcome to make comments or ask questions throughout the episode. Just use the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube. I'll try to include your questions if at all possible, and I've already seen questions coming in, so that's great. Mm. Remember that the books we're discussing today are available for sale or order. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. Thanks as ever to our generous technical partner, Auckland Live, and to Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their support in making this series possible. This series is free to view, so if anyone asks you for credit card information, Please ignore them, for they are villains. And please don't click mm-hmm. on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers Festival. Now, let us welcome our three writers in the order in which they'll be talking to me, to me today, and let's find out exactly where they are in the world. So, uh, tēnā koe te kolokesa mahina tuai, co-author with Carl Chittam and Damien Skinner of Crafting Aotearoa, A Cultural History of Making in New Zealand, and the wider Moana Oceania. Malo e lele, kolo kei welcome.
1: Tapu moe haa mana langi maa maa. Tapu moe haa mana whenua. Tapu moe haa mana moana. Tapu moe haa mana Auckland Writers Festival. Tapu moe haa mana ilo poto. Tapu moe haa mana gotoa pei kufa-faka-tapua ataa ke fai I acknowledge our heavenly and earthly realms. I acknowledge mana whenua, tangata whenua, indigenous peoples of this land, Aotearoa, New Zealand. I acknowledge my ancestors of the Waira Moana Oceania. I acknowledge um, Auckland Writers Festival, our hosts for today. I acknowledge our holders of knowledge and skills, in particular, my fellow speakers, Neil Gaiman and Leanne Shapton and Paula Morris. I acknowledge the lineage of each and every one of you who have tuned in today to listen to this Dalanoa. Um, and may I ask your permission to share with you today um, a little bit about my moment in crafting Aotearoa, a cultural history of making in New Zealand and the wider Moana Oceania. Sio Tōfa Kia ora Koto, and greetings to you all. Morena Paula, um, I am tuning in from Otahuhu in Tamaki Makaura.
0: Kia ora and I'm really glad you used that word Talanoa, the idea of a conversation, an exchange, a back and forth, because that's what we'll be having today. Kia uh, Our next guest is uh, Leanne Shapton, who we didn't tell her she had to talk in Tongan, but I'm sure she'll rise to the occasion right away. She is the author of Guest Book, a collection of ghost stories, both written and visual. Te kwe Leanne. Tell us where you are right now and tell us what are all those boxes.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you here in New York City now. Um, I live here, I'm Canadian, but I live here. I won't be living here for very much longer, that's why um, I have all these boxes. This. I had to take this lighting fixture down, I call it the roasted garlic. Um, and yeah, I, I'm i really happy to talk to you, Paul. I'm so sorry I couldn't be there for the festival. Um, New Zealand's weathered the virus a lot better than New York City has. Uh, so yeah, it's nice to it's nice to get to talk to you. And I'm honored to be with Konakesa and Neil.
0: Thank you. Jordalian, thank you so much. Our third writer is Neil Gaiman talking to us about the illustrated edition of his novel The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Ten Nakoi, Neil, we know that you are the furthest north of all of us.
3: I am. I'm on the Isle of Skye in Western Scotland. Um, and obviously, I wish I was still in New Zealand, um, such a sensible place and <laughs> such an honour to be on with Kala Kesa and with Leanne. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you so much. Um, now, Leanne and Neil, please hold tight. Don't wander off into the summer night or the summer afternoon, distracted by midnight suns. Uh, um, just hang around and we'll be coming back to you very soon. Now, our first conversation today is, is with Kolokeza Wafa Mahina Tu'ai, an author and curator who has worked at Te Papa Tongarewa, Auckland Museum and the Auckland Art Gallery. Her background is in art history, social anthropology, and museum and heritage studies. And her books include work on Tuvalu crochet, Tongan embroidery and crochet, and she was also a co-author of the landmark Tangata Olemoana, New Zealand and the People of the Pacific. With Carl Chittum and Damien Skinner, as I mentioned earlier, she's the author and editor of Crafting Aotearoa, a much-deserved finalist in the illustrated non-fiction category of this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. The book includes Mm -hmm. over 30 essays exploring aspects of craft knowledge and practices, historic and contemporary, by Māori, Pākehā and Moāna Oceania Makers. Welcome again, Kolokesa.
1: Thank you, Paula, and it's awesome to be here this morning.
0: Now, this book is a history and a celebration of the handmade object in Aotearoa, and you and your co-editors contend in the introduction that there's a renewed interest here in the handmade outside of the art world. Why do you think there is this renewed interest?
1: Um interest. I think first of all I'd just like to acknowledge my fellow um, co-authors, Paula um Daniel Skinner and Carl Chitham um, And also we had um Rigel Sorzano who played a really big part in the research side um, to enable us to include so much in the book. And as you mentioned, it was it took a whole village actually to produce the book. We had Um, 60 contributors you know that contributed um, small texts as you mentioned earlier Um, but also it was a whole seven years um, for Damien who kick-started it off and for Carl and I joined sort of five years part of that journey and um, the renewed interest uh, hmm, let me just think about that one I think it's you know making the, the book is sort of taking a cross cultural approach at what craft is, um, and crafting in Aotearoa um, New Zealand, and it's always been there. <laughs> you know I think we we touch on on the place of making in Aotearoa, you know, with um, our tangata whenua, and then um, tried as best as we could to touch on all the other communities that now call Aotearoa New Zealand home. Um, so I think, from my perspective, um, you know, renewed interest maybe is not the right word. It's it's always been there, but in terms of of um, creating a space and awareness to all these making places, you know, and um, yeah, and that's what we've tried to do with the book. And I think just reflecting back on the recent, you know, um, text of the worldwide pandemic and you know the I guess the role of making <laughs> and crafting and was so so evident in in you know social media with a lot of the makers sharing those who are tech tech savvy sharing on that platform um which was amazing because it showed not only those who are known you know within mainstream there is the the, the people that are known within a particular context and those who are Maybe your neighbours, or maybe you live with them in your household, who are makers but are not known yet. They're making a you know sort of contribution in such a, a key way to a particular practice. So maybe I wouldn't say renewed interest. I'd say um, you know it's always being there. It's how do we to how do we bring that out more so we can see the living and thriving making practices here in Aotearoa, but also um, beyond Aotearoa. Shore. I hope that may have
0: answered your question, Paula. Oh, absolutely, because you talk in the book about how the word craft yeah. is, a, is a tricky term here mm-hmm. in Aotearoa because it's politically loaded mm-hmm. and has been used in the past and maybe the present to maintain hierarchies between the coloniser and the colonised. One produces art and the other craft. Mm-hmm. And I also read the essay, a very interesting essay you wrote for Garland on the way the terms heritage, traditional or handicraft can be used to both define and undermine and I wondered how you think this book and its essays and its different components navigate this language and the tension it creates.
1: Yeah um, you've really hit quite a key point um, Paula in terms of I guess my um, contribution to this this Project um, collective project, but also I guess the area that I've been hugely um, a huge advocate of. I um, I think if I could just kind of go back to how I, I I got involved in this project. Um, Damien, as I said earlier, Damien um, was key driver of this of this project. And when you approached me, um, I at that time and place I had issues with the term craft, and that was because a lot of the makers I was working with. Um, from our Waira Mwanao communities who may be weavers or tapa makers, you know, we're we're given the the definition of you make craft and you make traditional works, but they make art and they make contemporary works. (laughs) And so when Damien approached me, you know, I said, well, you know, the concept around the project was amazing. And I said, well, are you open to me critiquing the term craft? And he said, yes. And I went, okay, I'm in. Um, but throughout the whole journey and process of, of being involved in this project from the beginning to the end, um, I'm not so anti the term craft anymore. You know, I think it, it really is, it, it identifies and acknowledges the importance of knowledge behind the use of particular terminologies. Um, and if there are terminologies that are problematic, then why are we still using it, you know? And, and if there are other terminologies that are more appropriate, then why shouldn't we choose, you know, why shouldn't we bring that to the fore and discard, you know, what what isn't working or what isn't inclusive of, of a wider sort of um, uh, representative of makers, you know. Um, so, yeah, he, uh, heritage, traditional, um, craft is uh, are, are all those terminologies that kind of, um, you know, for me was really, Um, good to interrogate and 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 what i think is quite crucial with this publication is that we were brave enough and i'm so glad that damien and carl were open to it um to really just do away with those terminologies you know pacific um we we talk about it is is an imposed terminology and it is vocab and everyone's vocab to disca- describe us as a people's, but also our making practices and our knowledge system, but it is not our term. So, you know, we had a whole process of what is a, a, an appropriate term that that privileges an, in, our Indigenous um, knowledges and languages, um, you know, as a start, and hence why we've used one Oceania um, in, in the book. And it, it's not inclusive. You know, I think we've acknowledged that it's Moana as a term is not inclusive, but it has meaning to Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's a term that's shared by some of the island nations, hence why we brought in Oceania, because then that um, includes the wider region, you know, and the island nations that don't have Moana in, in their in their languages. And that's why we use it together, always, Moana Oceania. So, um, yeah, no, uh, um, I think... That's a key thing with this book, which I I think it's a key contribution, is that we can do it. You know, a lot of people critique terminologies and yet still resort, resort to it because it's they've become terms and of, of convenience of our vocab. But until we take that away from our vocab, including publications where they publish things and it's there forever, how do we remove that and familiarize people's um, with language that we want to be long-lasting,
0: yeah. And I should just add to what you're saying, that that the reason you re- rejected the term Pacific is because it was one created by a European explorer, Magellan, yeah. and it's it's not indigenous to our area. It was something yeah. that was given to us from the Northern Hemisphere, which is it's interesting because I've always, of course, said, talked about Pacifica people, but now I am embracing your new term. Kaiser, so would you give us a reading from the book, please? It's
1: um, is sort of a little bit of what you touched on, Paula, but I think it kind of just gives the context and essence of what we we're trying to do this book um, to do with this book, but also um, an example of sort of a, a case study um, with with regards to a Tongan um, example where I think um, just wanted to share here where we have um, one of our fo- the, our photographers for the book was Judo Langonda of which um, it was Haruhiko Samashima and um, OMG, I, I'm sorry the name has just completely gone from my head but I'll bring him back. But they, Haruhiko, came and he photographed um, White Sunday in in Ellerslie and for him to turn around and say to me, I've lived here in Tamaki, Makaurau, for many, many years, but this is the very first time I've been in this context and seen this happening. But White Sunday is a key annual thing for us as Tongans, so I think it just highlights the need to create more awareness around all these different contexts and spaces of our living communities and our diverse communities, not only in Tamaki but Aotearoa, just to sort of or a better appreciation about um, value of the diversity in our making practices. So, here goes. But craft is a tricky term in Aotearoa. Why should a history of making give pride of place to pakeha objects and practices? How could you write a book in Aotearoa that didn't pay proper attention to the history of toi māori, the oldest and most distinct type of handmaking in this country? Craft is political and just and not just in terms of who and what gets included. There's a long history of using craft and related terms to suppress cultural activities. After all, to replace Indigenous words with Pākehā ones like handicraft or curio is a way of denying the Indigenous knowledge that is held in a specific name, and to relegate Indigenous people to making craft and not art is a way to maintain the hierarchies between coloniser and colonised. Finally, the term craft itself in Pākehā culture is being blown open, stretched and interrogated, pushing aside the usual usual focus on expected topics like the arts and crafts movements or studio crafts to include a much greater variety of makers in making. Telling the story of making in Aotearoa is obviously about Māori, tangata whenua, the first peoples in this land, and those whose making is indigenous to this place. The story will also be about Pākehā, who brought many kinds of craft with them and whose craft practices have played a role in shaping new identities for Pākehā and Aotearoa. But this history also includes the knowledge, practices and objects brought from the many other island homes of people who have settled here. This book acknowledges the ancestral connections of Aotearoa as an island nation among a sea of islands across Te Moana Nui Kiwa, the great ocean of Kiwa, guardian of the moana. Moana Oceania makers in Aotearoa are continuing through adaptation and innovation to make the kind of works that have been brought over from their homelands To be informed about crafting and making in Aotearoa means starting with knowledge and practices, objects and makers who live here, but it quickly leads to other islands. These stories can't properly be told without talking about what happened long ago, as well as more recently. Tongan Methodists know the first Sunday in May as Whakame, White Sunday. It is a special day dedicated to the celebration of children, and it is an occasion where the nima mea'a of Tongan women is unleashed in innovative and creative ways through clothing and adornment. Sorry. In the lead up to Whakamea, Tongan mothers and aunts, Tongan mothers, aunts and grandmothers prepare clothes and adornment for their children. These can be either Tongan or Pākehā in style or a mixture of both. The children prepare for their day by learning Bible verses, hymns and songs that they perform for families, friends and the wider congregation. Melisania Nakesime Moana Tuai's three grandmothers play a huge part on this special day. One grandmother, Tutanga Mahina, is a tufunga teuteu and is responsible for purchasing the right materials, usually white, cutting the pattern's free hand and then sewing the two-piece puletaha. that included a kofu worn over a tupenu. Another grandmother, Kolokesa Kulikefu, is responsible for embellishing the buletaha with nimamea alanga along the edges of the tupenu and the hem sleeves and neckline of the kofu. With her skilled hands, she is responsible for nimamea atui sisi, the making of sisi that adorn the waist, and nimamea atui kah- kahoa that adorn the neck, using a variety of synthetic materials such as nylon, beads and thread. The third grandmother, Melaya Kefu, makes sure that meliseni and Nakesi have appropriate ta'ovala to wear. A new one is usually preferable, but some years Melaya has drawn from her own personal collection of ta'ovala, With her knowledge and expertise of whaiva teuteu, she is the one responsible for making sure that the girls ta'ovala are wrapped and tied appropriately. There is great planning and attention to detail by all tufunga teuteu to ensure their children are the best dressed. The aim on the annual whakamea is to showcase the children and have have them look looking their finest. This creates a dynamic space of innovation and creativity. Crafting Aotearoa, A Cultural History of Making in New Zealand and the wider Moana Oceania, is a version of this new history, one where Māori, Pākehā and Moana Oceania knowledge and practices are placed alongside each other, and the connections, similarities, nuances and differences are given due weight. For a long time, these various trajectories of making have been discussed separately. This book draws them together into a dynamic conversation with each other. Different knowledges and histories of making are acknowledged, highlighting the multifarious ways of objects are described and used by communities living in the same time and place. The many interactions and intersection between Māori, Pākehā and Wārā Moāna makers come into view, and this is central to what this book sets out to achieve. Making, whatever term you use to describe it, has been crucial in establishing the conditions that have helped build the multicultural nation of Aotearoa. Craft is at the heart of the story.
0: Well, thank you very much for that reading. Um, I wanted to, I mean, while you were talking, I was looking at the superb images in the book that show us the items you're describing. And the book itself is really a taonga, a treasure mm-hmm. of imagery you know, from Fokairo to Crown Lynch, to Rotorua souvenirs. Do you have any particular um, favourite images or pieces, objects that you are adamant should be included in the book?
1: that's currently in the book or should have been in the book? <laughs>
0: no, the ones that are in the book. I don't want to get into your arguments behind the scenes.
1: Oh, <laughs> um, I think, think for me is, you know, why I selected that story. And I should have had an image I can show you. I think um, it, it's, that was one of the key things. Is that not only because of orders, but also my three mothers showing that, you know, the makers and key people who are, you know, being creative and ingenious and, and in the making certain, uh, making practices, are those closest to you? And and are they known within mainstream? No, you know, but are they are contributing to kind of continuing a particular practice that is passed down intergenerationally, and that's what's happening within living communities. And I think to go back to your question, one key um, work that we managed to get in this book last minute. And that was because I, myself, and um, my friend Toluma Anawe, Barbara makwati Afitu. we we run an organisation called Langimama where we kind of started off our organisation through working with a Cambodian community. So while trying to finish up this book project, we were working with this community. And they're one of the communities that are living and thriving here in Aotearoa. And we came across um, one of the members of that community who had made a particular instrument that's unique to Cambodia using natural materials um, and had, you know, to make it here to continue playing and practicing it here in Aotearoa. So I think, you know, having the opportunity to be working on a project while trying to finish this book, we were able to include that. So for me, I was grateful to include that because that's one of the things that, you know, we didn't. Um, not as representative in this book as the diversity of all of our communities that here that live here in Aotearoa. So um, yeah, just grateful that we're able to get a little bit of the Cambodian um, practice into the book.
0: Great. Okay. May I recommend this book to everyone listening? Is essential in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is an exploration of what we make, our imagination and our skill, and how what we make makes us as a society and group of cultures the further reading recommendations in the book are, are also extremely useful so kia ora kolokesa thanks so much for being here and we'll speak later again in this episode thank you
1: thank you paula
0: now our next guest today is Leanne Shapton, writer and artist, born in Canada and currently living in New York, as she said. She has written and illustrated 11 books and is an acclaimed designer for books and periodicals, including the New York Times Style Magazine, Paris Review and Granta. Her covers are so amazing that I spent time, I should have been spending on preparation for this episode, saving her images to my Pinterest account. Her book, Swimming Studies, about her youth as a competitive swimmer twice reaching the Canadian Olympic trials, won the 2012 National Book Critics Circle Award for autobiography. Miranda July has described Leanne's most recent book as mystical territory, a performance, an exhibition, a guest book. And guest book is its title, its subtitle is Ghost Stories. And it's not quite like other short story collections you've read, sometimes surreal, always imaginative, guestbook is an object of beauty and mystery that plays with words art and our expectations tēnā koe and thank you for joining us
2: thank you Paula
0: now I said short story collection um just now but obviously that's no real description at all for this book and it's approached a narrative do you have a better name for it
2: I I actually think a short story collection is fine. I mean, there was a there was a little debate um, when we were publishing it whether to actually say ghost stories or just say stories. And I was I was pushing, trying to push, ambitiously trying to push the form of the ghost story. But at the same time, um, I really want to push the form of the short story too. Um, and so, a collection of stories is fine by me. If that's <laughs> <where you> see
0: <laughs> That's good. Now, in small print on the copyright page, we learn that the stories in this book are illustrated by a combination of photos taken and staged by the author and found photographs. And it says all the captions and characters are fictional. Yet when I was reading, for example, the story of tennis player Billy Byron, I found myself doubting the lie and wanting it to be true. And I even, I'm ashamed to say, Googled him. So persuasive is your use of staged and found photography. And I wondered what comes first for you in this process? An image you find, an image you create, the story, the character?
2: Um, It's it's interesting to hear that reaction because a lot of people have Googled Billy Byron and looked that up, and I'm so curious about what what plays with the disbelief and the suspension of disbelief if I outright say this is fiction and yet, and I think it is that we assume something by looking at photographs and I really wanted to play with that, um, with the ghost story because of of how we believe what we see and how all along ghost stories have, have, have played with um, how, you know, what we believe and, and proof. Um, but in that case, that story, uh, I really wanted a ghost story about a, an athlete, because I haven't come across very many, um, and I was really inspired by the rocking horse winner. It's one of my favorite ghost stories, one of my favorite sort of uncanny stories, and um, the idea that um, the idea that he could push himself to victory by um, by sort of giving himself away, and yeah, so I guess to to answer your question, in that case, um, the story came first. But I really wanted to, um, you know, there are a mix of images I found of, of sort of boys playing, vintage pictures of boys in the 70s and 80s playing on courts. And then I had to go onto a stock photo site and try to find pictures where players' um, faces were obscured. I'm really going into, you know, the, the, the sort of um, explain this, how the sausage was made with this. But there's pictures, like one of those pictures of the, of the player on the court um, is actually a woman, a Chinese player. There's Djokovic. There's, I think there's Roddick, Um, But so I was really looking for, yeah, I was really looking for um, for images that I knew the reader would believe, so to speak.
0: And the, I should just say the story you referenced just now, The Rocking Horse Winner, is by G.H. Lawrence, yes. G.H. Yes, Lawrence, yeah, yeah. And um, I actually wanted to, to talk to Neil about that story as well. So it's, oh, yeah? um, maybe we could... Talk some more about it. Now, in, the, in your story, Christmas Eve, the illustrations are pieces of vintage wrapping paper, uh, beautifully coloured. It's a passion of my own, I have to tell you. And the one on page 84 looks very familiar to me, eerily familiar. And so I was talking with Kola Kesa just now, as you know, about the tension in her book. And I wondered if this is part of the tension in yours, the use of the familiar out of context and in a way that queries our understanding of actually what, Illustration of a story means.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you um picked up on that. I mean, in the case of. Um, in the case of that story, I really wanted images. I mean, Christmas is a time for telling ghost stories, very traditionally, and I really wanted images. Um, very very cheap, commonplace, um, mass-produced images to sort of. Get, um reflect to the reader what our common visual memory of Christmas was. So I looked specifically for snowfalls at night. So the sort of snow on a dark background, the kind of silent night image, and tried to find as, as much of that wrapping paper um, as I could. Um, so that, again, there would be this sort of a, literally a wallpaper that we all recognized as we were reading the story. Um, and that of course
0: has a whole different layer as well. For us in the Southern Hemisphere, we grew up with summer Christmases, and yeah. yet that imagery is, is is very familiar to us. I mean, we grew up seeing holly and berries and robins. Yeah, we had not seen true. them in, in real life at all. Um, I think that's part of the reason I'm so drawn. I was so drawn to those illustrations in your book, although the use of of that wrapping paper because it has uh, even broader connotations about how our notion of christmas is imported it's a received story in a way too so yeah, I mean, we could just have a whole christmas episode actually and discuss it yeah.
2: <laughs> and linking back to sort of what Kesa was saying about sort of a shared history i mean i'm very very interested in our in our collective uh, image bank and you know even you know you saying even that you have summer Christmases there that you still can read and can understand and and get a sense of what that wrapping paper um, uh, emits, emotes.
0: And bizarrely what it does suggest is real Christmas, even though of course it's fake Christmas (laughs) because it's wrapping paper. That's often quite kitschy and garish. Another thing I love. Now uh, the picture on the cover of your book is a drawing of an iceberg that also kind of looks like a ghost And, in fact, my my husband was delighted that he had worked out it was an iceberg before I did. Now, it's drawn by a Titanic survivor, and we see it again as an image in the story, the iceberg is viewed by eyewitnesses. But, again, the story or the testimonies that accompany it are unexpected and not about the Titanic at all. And In another story, the text asks us to think about what you don't get to see, and I wondered Mm – Is that what the icebergs suggest in the earlier story? What's missing from the accounts we're reading? What neither the images or the words on the page
2: can tell us? Sure. I mean, you could say, I've never really articulated this before, but this whole book is about the version you do get. And the fact that our, our closest version to the iceberg that struck the Titanic is this really kind of poor drawing. I love this drawing. It's by George Reams. It's in, you know, the National Archive, um, but that's the best we got. You know, even though photography was invented, this is the most reliable image of that iceberg. There's, uh, you know, as you know from the story, there's there's hundreds of pictures that, oh, is this the iceberg? You know, thought, shot from the Carpathia and stuff, but it is in fact this that we look at that that sort of carries all of our knowledge of of that night because this is proof. This is this is what the the lawyers asked him to draw, you know, with a you know with a pencil that that day in the office. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in versions, and what we do get and what we do receive as proof, and what and how that's all we got. Like it's it's scary, <laughs> but it's also interesting to sort of go through the layers and go, why is this my version? Um, and you know, why is that someone else's version? Yeah. Leanne, would you read to us from your book, please? Sure. Um, I'm going to read the first story, which is called S is in Sam, H-A, P is in Peter, T is in Tom, O, N is in Nancy. Um, and it is accompanied by photos, but I need to look at it so I can't read really Tom... Disappears for oh wait sorry I skipped S S as in Sam. Sam has blue eyes. Ex Royal Canadian Air Force, flew a B25 bomber in World War II. Likes his sherry, insults butter and conservative politicians. He wants to cheer her up. Sam keeps watch with night patrols and lands birds on her window sills. He is 75% deaf. He is seen in the reflection of the porch door. Peter is tall for a Filipino and thin. He wears wide whale corduroys in colors like rust, mustard, and moss. His hips are broad and when seated in a chair, he crosses his legs at the knees. He likes ketchup on most foods. He has big ears and hands. His skin is the color of wet sand. Peter is methodical. He is the one who keeps her safe. He is the one who loves her, reassures her. He can be heard as the murmur of company in the living room. Tom disappears for weeks on end, but when he's there, he's smiling and curious. He's mischievous with her fate and capricious with her time, putting things in her path that could spell disaster or wisdom. Tom is an augury. Tom is a finger shaker and letter writer. He can play the guitar. Guests have reported hearing his music late at night. Nancy has a big mouth opinionated, imperious, and uninhibited. She does not worry what anyone thinks. Nancy loves doing laundry. She launders everything. Nancy has big breasts and pushes them up, no qualms. Nancy is the one who makes her heart beat louder and her shoulders shrug. Nancy draws a circle around her. She holds her and is as dark blue as night, as white as noise. Sometimes there's the banging sound of sneakers in the basement dryer.
0: Thank you very much, Leanne. We'll be talking to Neil soon about terrifying houses, among other things. But one of the most frightening stories in guestbook is Peel House, in which the story itself is formed by captions to black and white photographs. Now, in the sparseness of the words and the murkiness of the images, you create a powerful and very unsettling feeling of unease and I wonder—is this what draws you to ghosts as the link in this book? Do they toy with our deep fears and the the dark parts of our imagination?
2: Yeah, and that that story in particular um, follows the the, the the sort of structure that we are all used to reading in biographies, where we see the photo signature, and that's where there's the picture of the grandfather, and the mother, and the school he went to, or the you know the the girls' school and the you know class photo. And I really wanted to play with how we knew how to read photo caption, photo caption, um, surrounded by story, but then remove the story and only have, you know, what we've got between the caption and the and the picture. Um, I'm glad you found it. I'm, I'm glad you found it scary. I, um, I mean, I've been scared of ghosts and obsessed with ghosts my whole life, um, and that surrounded uh, a house that I lived in that. Um, that I felt that what I felt was was haunted. Um, now I've completely lost track of your question, Paula. That's, that's I- right. So, uh, because actually, um, Le- Leanna, uh,
0: a viewer has sent in a question, and I don't think it's quite what I asked you before. So I'd like to address it. They're asking about writing a collection like this. If if the ghost story is the starting point, or if you are writing and bringing stories together. And then that notion of these are ghost stories emerges from that.
2: Right. Um, sometimes it'll come from an idea like a house that I once lived in that I was spooked by. Another time it's why are there no ghost stories about athletes. But throughout, I think it's me going, what is the perfect form for this idea that I want to get across? Um you know, does it include wrapping paper? Does it include drawings of, of an iceberg? Does it include pictures of the Greenland shark? Um, it's me trying to play with form more than anything. And sometimes I'm interested in the form and then I go, oh, I have to invent a story that will go with that form because I want the form of list of illustrations in a book or something like that. And so it 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 comes, I mean, I love writing as much as I love laying out painting, drawing. And so it does, it sort of, Has a few prongs, um, yeah, and then and then you get to always go in and rewrite whether it's rewriting the images, rewriting the the words, and the text in that. So, um, everything I mean, I consider laying out images writing, so you know,
0: how long did this book take you to put (laughs) together?
2: Well, I Oh gosh, it was about four years overdue. I had a, I had a kid, and then another book and a collaborative book in the middle. So it took a long time. And the stories, even the first one, S is in Sam H. J. That's my last name, and that's how on the telephone I stay. And then I was like, who are these people? I've always wondered who those people were. Sam, Nancy, and so all. It's it's been it's been in my head for a really long time, probably eight, probably. Seven years, something like
0: that. Yeah. Um, Another seven-year book. This is very interesting. <laughs> um, just um, This is a little bit off-piste because uh, we're talking about this particular book, but I was really interested to see that one of your recent commissions was to create new covers for five books by the late Austrian writer Thomas Bernhardt, and you also wrote the afterward for one of the books, The Loser. And in it, you discuss how the protagonist of that novel is based on the radical Canadian pianist Glenn Gould, an artist you admired growing up, and the concept of winners and losers in art. And you write, the desire to be special, best, fastest and strongest, to be admired and beloved, is primal. Now, this sounds like the competitive athlete in you, but how does that work with the artist in you?
2: Um. I would say with me and in my case, I always want to um, best myself. So none of my books really resemble each other. It's always sort of trying again and again with the form to perfect, to perfect um, a, a different telling of a story and the language that I that I want to, the language that I want to deliver, deliver it in, the del- delivery system, so to speak of, um, of story because I think it can happen in so many ways. So I'm very, I am very competitive with myself. And um, I sort of like that I can, I mean, I'm not competitive. I love graphic novels um, and I love, you know, straight fiction. Bernhardt's one of my favorite writers. I wish I could do what he can, but I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm very aware that I'm in my own lane, but want to not be in my own lane. And I don't know, it's a, it's a funny thing, um but yeah it it uh I also love kind of isolating what I do think is is my are my standards I mean Bernard is one of my standards in terms of of story in terms of form in terms of experiment, and in terms of i mean he's just amazing um and Alice Monroe, whose birthday was yesterday, again another kind of standard bearer for me, so um so, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm competitive with them because I know I I will never get that or be that, but I want to be as good as they were to themselves, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much, Leanne. This has
0: been incredibly interesting. Um, we are running late with our episode. That's okay. Our episode will go as long as it needs to go, so don't everyone worry or anything. Just sit tight. We'll come back to you in a, a little bit, Leanne, to join our conversation. Kia ora. Yep. Now, our third guest today is one of the most famous writers in the world, Neil Gaiman, and the only writer in the Auckland Writers' Festival Winter Series so far to feature in a Tori Amos song. Described as one of the great masters of modern speculative fiction, Neil is the creator of worlds in the form of books, graphic novels, stories, film, and television. From his landmark Sandman series for DC Comics, to the dark gothic fantasy of his children's book Coraline, to his reanimations of the Norse canon and the books American Gods and Norse mythology, among others, Neil's work is eclectic, wildly imaginative, and highly influential. His novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, was originally published in 2013, with a special illustrated edition published last November. The illustrations are by the Melbourne-based artist Elise Hurst the story of an unnamed man who returns to the lost home of his childhood to seek out the bucolic landscape and recover memories of a terrifying episode. The novel is a chilling page turner and a writing masterclass. The New York Times review praised the way Neil uh, is especially accomplished in navigating the cruel, uncertain dreamscape of childhood and called the author's mind a dark, fathomless ocean. Tenna koe and welcome.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Now, The Ocean at the End of the Lane has been called a fairy tale and a fable. It's also an adventure story, a novel for adults about childhood, what we remember and forget, our deep fears, our imaginations, our powerlessness. I just want to read a, a little quote for us to discuss um, from your protagonist, your bookish protagonist as a seven-year-old, and he says, I liked myths. They weren't adult stories and they weren't children's stories. They were better than that. They just were. Adult stories never made sense and they were so slow to start. They made me feel that there were secrets, masonic, mythic secrets to adulthood. Why didn't adults want to read about Narnia, about secret islands and smugglers and dangerous fairies? Now, this seems to speak to your whole body of work as a writer, exploring the area between genres, embracing the fantastic and fabulous. Is your child protagonist speaking for you in this instance?
3: Oh, I think very much so. Uh, Part of the joy of getting to write that book was that the protagonist isn't quite me, but He's very much based around me age seven. He's he's the nearest thing I could come up with while writing to, to creating a version of me, which I, I really did because um, at the time my wife was in Melbourne making an album and I missed her very much. And I thought, well, I'll write a short story for her that she'll like as a present. And that was how Ocean at the End of the Lane began. It was, I, and I thought, well, she she likes emotions and she likes true stuff. She's not really very big on fantasy. So I'll give her a short story that's very much about me and the landscape I was in when I was a kid. And she'll like that. And then it just grew and got completely out of hand and became something else, <laughs> as all good fiction appeared.
0: Absolutely. Now, the illustrations by Elise Hurst um, play with light and dark, and they're often very dreamlike, suggesting the merging of the real and unconscious worlds of the protagonist when he's a child. And I was reminded of that final line of the poem um, from Through the Looking Glass Life, what is it but a dream? Why did you choose Elise as your collaborator for this new edition of the novel?
3: Um, Elise had. I'd I'd encountered Elise, although not actually, oddly enough, initially met her when I was in Melbourne some years ago. And uh, she came to an event of mine and had to leave, but left me a sketchbook to look at. And I looked at her art and thought, this person is brilliant. And dropped her a message, said hello. She would email me back and email me these strange, glorious, weird drawings that seemed like they were both children's stories and adult stories at the same time. And um, which meant that the very first time somebody said to me, who would you like to illustrate Ocean at the End of the Lane? I thought, well, actually, Elise Hurst has that thing where it feels like children's illustration it feels like classic brilliant beautiful children's illustration from the 1920s from the 1930s only it has a completely different sensibility and i asked her if she'd do it she said yes and then she went all the way from melbourne to england to the sussex that i grew up in and uh she went around and i told her places to go and things to see. And she went and gathered her references and she learned what the trees look like, what the bluebells look like, what the flowers look like. And uh, then she created her story from there.
0: It's interesting that you talk about it as a classic style because I was thinking reading it that... Looking at the at the imagery she created for you, that it was old fashioned in the best possible sense, it reminded me of an edition of the Water Babies that I read as a child. Had something about that that magic and classic quality. I note um, that her bio at the end of the book says that she was raised on a diet of impressionism, apocalyptic biography, and Enid Blyton. So it was inevitable that she would illustrate that, that your book. Uh, let's stay in the, the realm of children's books at the moment. I mean, Alice in Wonderland obviously is a reference point in much of your work, and here you make very explicit references to it. I mean, your narrator at Seven complains, well, he shares Alice's view on a book without pictures or conversation, and he recites The Mouse's Tale to keep himself safe at a moment of high danger. Why does Alice in Wonderland remain such a seminal work for you?
3: I think there is a weirdness to any book that you read at the right age and that you start committing to memory. Um, I remember we got a gold star in school when I was seven if you could learn a poem from Alice in Wonderland, which meant that I have far too many poems from Alice in Wonderland committed to memory and committed to memory at an age when I didn't really even know what they meant you know the the the, the poem about fury and the mouse um, is a horrible little story about a mouse and a dog who is going to kill the mouse um, but I didn't know that I just loved the shape of it and the way the words all ran together so I think and I I, I and Alice also is something that I would go back to and read and reread and reread and it creeps in all over the place. Coraline, um, you know, there's a conversation between Coraline and a cat, which is just pure Alice in Wonderland about names and the significance of names and people have names because we don't know who we are. But cats don't need names because they know who they are. And I definitely felt I was absolutely channelling an Alice, writing it and showing people what colours I was flying under. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, books are a refuge for our protagonist as a child. He says, a book is where I went whenever real life was too hard or too inflexible. And as you're talking now, of course, and you've said many times about your own dedication to reading as a child, and obviously you remain voracious reader but now as a writer is your own imagination the place you seek alternatives to the inflexibility of the real world
3: sometimes yes um but it gets harder it's definitely been much much harder under in this sort of covid world to go to that place normally i think when uh when things would get rough in real life i could always go to the making up place And the making up place was fabulous because I could make things up there and I was in control. So even when real life had spun completely out of control, there was a world I was in control of. Um, It's definitely been harder over the last five months, four months. And I think part of that is because the parts of my head that are normally taking imaginary people and imagining possible things that could happen to them and trying to imagine and trying to predict futures. um, I'm much too busy trying to figure out what the actual future is going to be and how to get it out of the mess that we're in currently. And it's, so it's harder to take refuge. And I've been taking a lot more refuge in um, books by friends and actually in rereading a lot of old children's books as well, getting fascinated by books that I loved when I was 8, 9, 10, and finding out if any of them are still readable as an adult, if there are things to enjoy, if there are writers whose work I can find things in. And that's been fascinating too. Although right <laughs> now I'm reading... Um, Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, and he's just magic. I love the way that he puts a sentence together and his stories and his people, its just wonderful.
0: Absolutely, and his, he is familiar to many of our Auckland Writers Festival audiences because he's obviously taken part in the festival here before. I'm, it's interesting you're saying this, Neil, because my sister spent quite a lot of lockdown here rereading the novels of Eleanor M. Brent Dyer, the Chalet School books that we grew up mm-hmm. with, it's quite interesting, as you say, in a time of crisis, we take a step back to things that gave us some kind of nourishment in childhood.
3: I've definitely found that there are writers who I've had no, I mean, no particular interest in going back to, or there have just been a lot of other things to read. Who I've been going, okay, I wonder, I wonder if I can find some solace in there. This is an author that I that gave me magic a long time ago, is there magic still to be found? And sometimes there is.
0: Neil, would you read to us from your book, please?
3: Of course. This is from Chapter 2 of um, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. It was the first day of the spring holidays, Three weeks of no school. I woke early, thrilled by the prospect of endless days to fill however I wished. I would read. I would explore. I pulled on my shorts, my t-shirt, my sandals. I went downstairs to the kitchen. My father was cooking while my mother slept in. He was wearing his dressing gown over his pajamas. He always cooked breakfast on Saturdays. I said, Dad, where's my comic? He normally bought me a copy of Smash before he drove home from work on Fridays and I would read it on Saturday mornings. In the back of the car, do you want toast? Yes, I said, but not burnt. My father did not like toasters. He toasted bread under the grill and usually he burnt it. I went outside into the drive. I looked around. I went back into the house, pushed the kitchen door, went in. I liked the kitchen door. It swung both ways, in and out. So servants, 60 years ago, would be able to walk in or out with their arms laden with dishes empty or full. Dad, where's the car? In the drive. No, it isn't. What? The telephone rang and my father went out into the hall where the phone was to answer it I heard him talking to someone the toast began to smoke under the grill I got up on a chair and turned the grill off that was the police my father said someone's reported seeing our car abandoned at the bottom of the lane I said I hadn't even reported it stolen yet right we can head down now meet them there toast he pulled the pan out from beneath the grill the toast was smoking and blackened on one side Is my comic there, or did they steal it? I don't know. The police didn't mention your comic. My father put peanut butter on the burnt side of each piece of toast, replaced his dressing gown with a coat worn over his pyjamas, put on a pair of shoes, and we walked down the lane together. He munched his toast as we walked. I held my toast and did not eat it. "'We'd walk for perhaps five minutes down the narrow lane "'which ran through fields on each side "'when a police car came up behind us. "'It slowed and the driver greeted my father by name. "'I hid my piece of burnt toast behind my back "'while my father talked to the policeman. "'I wished my family would buy normal sliced white bread, "'the kind that went into toasters "'like every other family I knew.' My father had found a local baker's shop where they made thick loaves of heavy brown bread, and he insisted on buying them. He said they tasted better, which was, to my mind, nonsense. Proper bread was white and pre sliced and tasted like almost nothing. That was the point. The driver of the police car got out, opened the passenger door, told me to get in. My father rode up front beside the driver. The police car went slowly down the lane. The whole lane was unpaved back then, just wide enough for one car at a time, a puddly, precipitous, bumpy way with flints sticking up from it, the whole thing rutted by farm equipment and rain and time. These kids, said the policeman, they think it's funny, steal a car, drive it around, abandon it, they will be locals. I'm just glad it was found so fast, said my father past caraway farm where a small girl with hair so blonde it was almost white and red red cheeks stared at us as we went past i held my piece of burnt toast on my lap funny them leaving it down here though said the policeman because it's a long walk back to anywhere from here we passed a bend in the lane and saw the white mini over on the side in front of a gate leading into a field tires sunk deep in the brown mud we drove past it parked on the grass verge the policeman let me out and the three of us walked over to the mini while the policeman told my dad about crime in this area and why it was obviously the local kids who had done it then my dad was opening the passenger side door with his spare key he said someone's left something on the back seat he reached back and pulled away the blue blanket that covered the thing in the back seat even as the policeman was telling him he shouldn't do that and I was staring at the back seat because that was where my comic was. So I saw it. It was an it, the thing I was looking at. Not a him.
0: Yoda, thank you so much, Neil. I can't tell you how... Uh, tell the audience how much that book is a page turner if they've not already uh, read it. Uh, we have a viewer question here. I just wanted to ask you, um, a viewer writes that obviously your main character in the ocean at the end of the lane is nameless throughout the novel. And the viewer asks, is he nameless to you too? Or do you know his name? Um,
3: oh, I know his name, but I, I. it was fun. I actually, in the very first draft of the novel, he was named once. Um, and then... I thought, actually, one of the interesting things about names is you really only use them with other people. And I was becoming fascinated anyway by the use of names in Ocean at the End of the Lane and the fact that none of the men actually have names. Um, there There is only one male name, I think, pretty much used. And other than that, everyone is simply described by their function. There's the South African lodger there's my father and i thought okay well then i think i can lose i'll, I'll lose the name of uh, of the protagonist as well and see if anybody noticed and mostly people only notice when they have to talk about the play or the book and actually when we did it as a west end play there was a point uh the national theater in the uk made ocean into a play and uh They asked me if they could name the character. And I said, sure, of course, if that makes things easier. And they went through rehearsal after rehearsal with the character named and then realised they didn't need it. And these days in the cast list, he's just listed as boy.
0: Um, Leanne and I, as you know, were talking a little bit earlier about a specific D.H. Lawrence story, The Rocking Horse Winner. Um, What she's described as a ghost story and a horror story, and it also involves a boy, a house, parents who are less than reliable, and the adult need for money. And This notion of money and the sense that it solves problems or, in fact, creates problems is very important in your novel too. Was that always central to the story, or is it something that emerged as you were writing?
3: Well, everything in that novel emerged in the writing. It was the, the most sort of emerged in the writing thing I think I've ever written. Um, and one of the things that kids, uh, when, when adult money issues impinge upon children's lives, it becomes a specific thing. And I loved the idea of a monster, of something awful and primal, that was trying to make people happy by giving them money in all the wrong ways. And so that, but that definitely emerged from a, you know, the starting point of somebody who has committed suicide uh, in the wrong place and in the wrong time and woken something up by killing themselves over money issues. And it was, and then going, okay, well, I've, I guess the thing that they've woken up is going to be trying to give people money.
0: Now on the subject of money, I wanted to ask you one more question from a viewer before we bring our other writers back to chat. Um, the, the viewer has given your enormous popular success, how easy is it to stay true to your imagination and ignore the voices of the marketplace? How do you navigate that?
3: Most I navigate it because I've, never been any good at it to begin with um and i've learned over the years to um do the things that i'm good at and one of the things that i'm really bad at is writing for money Uh, the first book i ever wrote i wrote only for money i i was it was a biography of duran duran by me as a 23, 24 year old young journalist. And um, and I did it because it paid my rent and it paid for me to get an electric typewriter to replace my manual typewriter. And uh, the book came out, it sold out. And uh, a week later, the publisher went bankrupt and I never got any royalties, I had to look at this and go, well, actually this was all this time that I spent selling out and I didn't really even actually get the money. Um, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I'm I'm better off just doing the stuff I like doing. And that way, if something goes wrong and the publisher goes off into involuntary liquidation, at least I'll have made something that I love.
0: I feel that Duran Duran kind of owe you, to be honest.
3: <laughs> They've been re- I, many years later. I ran into Simon Le Bon in a social situation and liked him enough that after a couple of days, I sidled over and I said, I, 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 when I was young, I, I wrote a book about Chirandaran. And he said, Which one? And I said, Uh, great cover published by Proteus, uh, first four years of the Fab Five. He said, Oh. He said, Yeah, great cover. Oh, we like that one. That was, that was the best of them. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it's good you
0: remembered the cover. Now, can we could bring Leanne and Colin Kayser back to join us again. Well, I mean, we've been talking this morning about the interplay between images and ideas, uh, the cover of your Duran Duran book, obviously, one of the key images of your life. But we've also, I think, been talking about the possible tensions that arise between worlds, genres, forms, media. Uh, I'm thinking about a New York New Yorker piece um, I read about your work, Neil, um, which described your books as genre pieces that refuse to remain true to their genres and suggested your audience is broader than any purists. And it seems that none of you are interested in a purist's approach. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about the notion of purism? Uh how important to you is really the notion of innovation and cross collaboration and pushing boundaries. Leanne, do you have anything to to say about this?
2: I mean, innovation, I think is extremely important to me. It's what I often look for um, within genres and outside of genres. I mean, the reading, reading is, you know, reading is, is a verb. It's it's not confined to printed word. I don't know. It's alive. You know, words. The The languages are alive, and they will change and evolve. And and reading, you know, reading what is what language is. I think um, evolves just as as quickly too. And I just I love surfing that edge of sort of how how much do we all know um, what something means. I mean. I, I would love. I, I just, you know, something that's always interested me is 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 a kind of, is a kind of um, a lexicon of images. This sort of an 80 Warburgian idea that we do have a collection, a, a collective sense of, um, mm-hmm. of of story and narrative that's told through very high and very low image, very high and very low language. And so I'm really. I'm. I'm really. Uh, I love reading across genres, and I love, you know, if I teach, bringing in a bunch of different genres. I was so happy that when I was on the the Booker uh, jury that we got Nick Dernazzo's, um Sabrina up there into the long list because, you know, literature is again, it's alive. So, yeah.
0: And this notion you're bringing up of 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 reading doesn't have to be just of words is something that here in the Southern Hemisphere, Moana Oceania, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is something we talk about a lot, isn't it, Kolo That's that our literature can occur in objects as well as on the page?
1: Yes, no, totally. I think, um, you know, with with the book, one of the definitions before we kind of started working, on it's like we had to land on what is a definition of craft we're going to work with and, you know, sort of... Hence my um, movement from anti the term to like, it's not too bad of a term, um, where craft is something that's handmade with knowledge and skills. And then we sort of expanded that to say craft is something that's human made because you have cultures who are oral cultures, um, you know, like with, for example, for the Samoan community and other communities, you know, oratory is a big part of their cultural practices, and that is crafted. So, you know, looking at how we can expand particular terms, and we can only do that when we kind of approach it from the different worldviews and lenses of those communities you're trying to give voice to. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's totally a key. And and what you said earlier, Paul, around sort of collaboration, you know, that is so crucial. I think today, especially if you are all about about um, being genuinely diverse and inclusive, you have to collaborate. You can't possibly know everything about everyone, you know. And I guess if you kind of, you know, are talking about your own your own particular view, but for a for a book, I guess like crafting our it has really been enriched by all the many voices and contributors and minds, hearts, and minds that contributed to it. So, Carl, Damien, and I couldn't have possibly possibly pulled that book off by ourselves you know and you know we did what we can we brought in our areas of expertise and knowledge and then drew on everyone else that we knew would enrich it um, and that was from those that are quite well known within the sector and mainstream and the unknowns, you know um, and and like with what I'd mentioned earlier around the Cambodian community I had to find the maker's name his name is Hern On. And his work that's on in the book was photographed by Kim Huck, Cambodian photographer. Um, yeah, so I think today, in today's world, um, and if, we, you know, if we're going to be all about inclus- inclusivity and diversity, um, collaboration is the way to go. And just before I, I need to say Mark Adams, my sincere apologies for forgetting your name. The other photographer, Paul, I had to just say so. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Kolokaisa. I mean, talking about collaboration, Neil, you are king of collaboration. You've collaborated with other artists across many different media. How important has cl- those collaborations been towards your own creative practice, your own processes, your own
3: innovations? I think I was really, really lucky in getting to work in comics and, um, as a very young man before comics were in any way fashionable things to do because I had to learn about collaborating. I had to learn that actually it was more fun as an artist to make something and give it to somebody who would then make art with it and give it back to you. Um, and I also, I think I learned a lot because I was working in a medium that people mistook for a genre. So because comics is a medium and because people assumed that comics was a genre, nobody minded if in comics I lurched drunkenly from genre to genre and did whatever I wanted. And (laughs) because it was still comics, it was fine. And then as I started getting more and more into writing prose, I just assumed that I had all the the same rules that I'd had when I was doing comics, which is I'm allowed to do whatever I want, and that they were still basically fundamentally true. And nobody stopped me. So I, I think... And all of that goes back to collaborating. And, you know... And also, I was probably looking back on it, the the luckiest boy in the world, um, when Terry Pratchett phoned me up and said, here, this thing that you've started writing, do you want to sell me the idea or do you want to do it together? And I said, let's do it together. Um, because I got to craft, and I, I would absolutely use that word, a novel with Terry Pratchett, and I got to work with Terry as a craftsman and watching him build a novel in the way that a craftsperson might build a beautiful Chippendale chair or an amazing rug or or put together, you know, the staircase behind me was made by craftspeople. Um, Terry regarded writing fiction as something that you crafted. And he always felt that if if you crafted it well, the art would be there. The emotion would be there. You would make people feel, you would make people care. But the important thing was to make something that was beautifully crafted.
0: Kia ora, Neil. This, This Talanoa we've been having today on Art and Craft has been really special and um, I, I make no apologies for us running over. Thank you so much, Cola Kesa, Leanne, Neil. Thank, thank you. Oh. To you.
3: Oh, thank thank you, you so much.
0: Thank you, Paula. Leanne, now I should hi. also thank everyone else who has made this episode possible, especially the Auckland Writers Festival team, Auckland Live, and Copyright Licensing New Zealand. Kia ora also to the sponsors and partners listed on the festival's website. Thank you so much for your generous support. Remember that this episode can be viewed again on the festival website, and if you'd like a copy of the 2020 programme, an excellent reading guide for the rest of the year, please email the festival and they'll send one out to you. Uh, join us again next week when our guests are Julia Ebner, the Austrian writer, researcher and a consultant on counterterrorism to the UN. We'll be talking about her recent book, Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists, in which, amongst other things, she hangs out in the alt-right networks that radicalised the Christchurch terrorist. Uh, also joining us, award-winning British writer, Patrick Gale, with his latest novel, Take Nothing With You, an evocative story of music and coming of age, and New Zealand's inaugural poet laureate, Michelle Leggett, with Metzaluna. Uh, it brings together her nine collections in one volume and bravely and tenderly explores the paradoxes of losing her sight and remaking the world in words. See you same time, same place next week. Matewa.